Welcome to the RazorWire podcast, where we discuss all things in the information security and cybersecurity world. From current events and trends, through to commentary from experts in the field, providing vital advisory on what it is to work in the information security and cybersecurity space. Hello, welcome to another edition of RazorWire. Today, we're talking about the criminal element within InfoSec. It's something that you'll probably hear InfoSec people talk about from time to time, but we don't really kind of get into the nuts and bolts behind it, why they do it, that kind of thing. And and it's been a, a question that I think a lot of people have asked in the past who are not in information security. You know, why do they do it? What's the motivation behind it? Uh, what type of people do this kind of thing and, and why, you know, and maybe a little bit about these kind of groups and how they operate, how they work. So today, for uh, the first time, we have two new guests. We have Victor. Victor, do you want to kind of make an intro for yourself? Sure, of course. Um, well, first of all, thank you for having me, James. I'm Victor Asin. I'm um I'm manager at uh, the labs department at uh, Outpost 24 within the threat intelligence business unit. Fantastic. They're just the man we need for this type of discussion. And long-term friend of mine, Richard, who you may have seen in some of our previous videos. Richard, do you want to kind of give yourself a bit of an intro? Yeah, James, absolutely. Um, pleasure to be here, my friend. It's been far too long. And, you know, so what do I do? Gosh, what do I not do? Um, I'm currently VP of technology for a large data analytics company. Uh, was recently accepted onto the Forbes Tech Council, which was a, a nice accolade. Um, you know, but I'm saving all the good stuff for you, James, and your podcast. <laughs> where it's at. But yeah, I've been in cybersecurity for 22 years. Uh, funny enough, a great podcast. I studied psychology back at uni. So this is a subject close to my heart. Uh, and I've been part of breach teams. Um, I've been part of incident response, major breach responses. I used to go on the, the roadshow years ago, James, talking about the anatomy of attack and, and the different types of cyber criminals and why they do what they do. So, you know, uh, as we'll learn in this podcast, and not a huge amount has changed, just sophistication, but uh, it'll still be an interesting chat nonetheless. Fantastic, fantastic. Right, well, let's get into it then. So, criminal activity. Let's face it, since the human race has been the human race, we've had our criminal element you go back far enough and it was usually because one tribe had a, a bit more stuff than other tribes, so that tribe would wander in, beat, beat the hell out of one, the, you know, the tribe with the stuff, take their stuff and wander off into the distance. As the human race progressed along, that never really changed. You know, and when people started transiting goods from A to B, the bandits would come riding over the hill, firing their bows, and before you knew it, you'd lost half your stuff, most of your stuff, and half the people were killed. Um, we fast forward many, many years. You know, larceny has been a significant part of pretty much every culture on the planet. In fact, every culture on the planet, apart from maybe some of the tribal stuff, Aborigine, that kind of thing back in the day. But we have been robbing one another for many, many years, uh, usually for assets, goods, and then eventually money when that was created. And it's pretty much stayed consistent all the way through. You know, we've all seen the great films, especially the British films, about the uh, the London kind of criminal underground, the Cray Twins, all the other stuff, you know, all the protection rackets, drug running, gun running, all manner of stuff that the human race has, has, has decided is is worthwhile for a few quid or dollars or 
whatever it is you may well, you know, your poison may well be. And fast forward into the beautiful realm that we're in at the moment, the digital age where we can communicate instantly and assets and amounts of currency can be transferred almost instantly over large distances. Digital assets, digital information has now become king. And as the criminal element has a tendency to evolve, it has indeed evolved in this digital world. And this is the world that we find ourselves in. We are, as a species, extremely reliant on technology now. Uh, We can't go back. This is it. Uh, We are reliant on our computers. We are reliant on digital currencies, or we're starting to get to that point, and all the underpinning services that, that make up our wonderful society. And we have our criminal elements. So... I suppose we really start. Who are they? What are, you know? What are we looking at in this in this day and age when it comes to digital crime? Who wants to go first, Richard? Do you want to? Do you want to kick off? Yeah. So, yeah, you're right. Look, you've you've, you've given history a very quick snapshot, right? But at the end of the day, these individuals, these groups, and we'll talk about who they are in a moment. They're after stuff, and that stuff is now digital. But don't underestimate that that digital stuff can also map into physical assets, which we'll talk about a little bit later. But look, the industry really sees three significant group types, right? So the one that we kind of all know about is cyber criminals, right? The the people that want the biggest bang for their buck, as it were, right? They the the, the spray and pray approach, the, the the most reward for the least amount of effort possible, and that's where you typically see most of your ransomware kind of attacks, social engineering things happen, you know, or, or the guys that that prey on those that don't patch and find easy easy uh, breach points and and steal stuff and, and stuff. Is a, is a longer conversation, right? Because it isn't all about personal identifiable information. And then the other group that uh, we know a lot more about, we're starting to see a resurgence of them based on the current geopolitical climate, um, are your activists, right? Your politically, socioeconomic motivated groups that don't do this for money per se, although the lines are being blurred a little bit at the moment because these groups do need to fund their activities and, and they're not getting it from government sources for the, for the better part. And they're still around, but becoming a much bigger swell of problem to deal with. Uh, and the last kind of traditional group is what they used to call and still call the APTs or the, the, the nation state groups. And for me, and, and we won't get to this right now because I'll, I'll let Victor also talk about his view on the, the different uh, groups. They're the ones that have really caused the biggest problem historically. And they're probably every organization's biggest nightmare just due to the insidious nature of how they operate and the phenomenal funding they'll have based upon you know what's behind them. So from my perspective and what I've seen over the past 12, 15 years, they're the three core types of, of cyber criminal groups, if you like. Uh, yeah, basically that's uh, that's uh, the way we classify them, sort of as well, right? We have uh, you have basically financially motivated groups, uh, nation-sponsored groups, and then hacktivist operations. I'm not so sure whether the most dangerous group, or the one we should be worrying about, uh, are nation-sponsored, because there's elements uh, in in the three of them that uh, are very disruptive, right? But that's usually uh, the way to go about it, right? Not so much about their size or their targets, but uh, basically their motivation. What drives the group to to Operate and, and then what that will dictate how they will they, they will behave once uh, they've stolen your data or they are within your company. Well, this is it, and I mean, in many respects, there's a lot of blurred lines as well. There's a lot of movement between those groups. People can be in a more kind of hacktivist group. You know, there's certain elements in the world at the moment who are who are getting quite big on that. You know, attacking certain nation states who are doing special operations. 
we're hearing, starting to hear a lot of movement around that, but a lot of them have been or still are part of other groups. That's where they earn their money and the hacktivist groups they're the ones where they're, 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 they feel they're sort of doing what they need to do in order to to make their mark or to to help out in some way from from states going on. And it seems to be rather dramatically increasing as well. We saw one of the most interesting things for me was the the Conti leaks from um, Krebs Krebs on security, where obviously a very disgruntled individual who was part of of, of a nation that was under attack from another nation. And, and, and seemingly a lot of those people in Conti were part of that other nation as well. In fact, should we just say it? You know, a Ukrainian who was in the group with a load of Russians decided, you know what, I'm just going to push all of this out. And we saw all the, all, all the stuff that came out of Krebs. I mean, what was your opinion when you, when you saw, I take it you guys have read and, and looked through the chat files and the organization structures, that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, for for um, our side, it was very interesting to get a glimpse at uh, what actually goes on behind the curtain, right? It's not often you get to have these sort of insights. I believe the original rift uh, inside the group appeared when, um, as you said, Conti started to move uh, not so much to hacktivist uh, motivation, but uh, did claim to support uh, Russia fully and attack any or try, or try to target any of mm. uh, the allies of Ukraine. And that's, I believe, that's uh, when the when the rift inside the group started to to appear, right? When politics got in the way of money, sort of. I think that. Um, it was really, really interesting, basically, to be able to to see um, or to have a, a that that peek behind behind the the curtain, right? See how they treat their targets, how they discuss their tactics. That sort of information is basically what uh, teams within companies need in order to be able to understand the enemy, to be able to to sort of uh, of predict kind of their behavior. Yeah, I, I, what I found interesting about ContiLeaks was just how much politics was at play, right? How much, you know, if you if you sit back as uh, an organizational leader or somebody that owns data in a business or you have a, a, a medial interest in cybersecurity, you know, you kind of tend to sit back and see it as a, I, I want to monetize what it is that I do. Mm. Um, but what we're actually seeing is a big shift in the politics of all of this, right? So people will go after things that they have a political ideology in, even if it means taking food off their table and potentially putting themselves in a very difficult situation. And it just goes to show that the, the unpredictable nature of the world, you know, and the landscape that we operate in as individuals and as businesses. And, you know, and, and to go back to the original question, I will come back to Conte in a moment, you know, the entertainment factor, you know, think think about what happened during lockdown, right? Two, two years almost of house arrest for a lot of nations, a lot of people, right? And you've got, you know, teenagers and younger adults, and I'm not just saying that's the group, but it's a much wider demographic spread than that, that had more time on their hands than ever before, right? Couldn't go to school. And, you know, if you go back to Mr. Robot and the, the sensationalist nature of, you know, what hacking's all about and the fact that we're getting a lot more press, it has increased a massive swell of interest amongst the target demographic that would want to get involved. So the entertainment factor of just playing with code and seeing what you can do and creating some very big problems for some very big companies has become a bigger challenge because we used to always talk about script kiddies back in the day, you know, mm. um, as being a, a, like a, a niggling kind of a, a pain, you know, at, at the side of the desk for organizations. 
Actually, it's one of the bigger risks today as well, because as I said, the access to these tools due to various leaks from NSA and you know what means actually a relatively unsophisticated 18, 19, 24 year old who's got some reasonably good coding skills and kids are getting better at that becomes a big problem for organizations when they're thinking about who they're trying to protect themselves against. So there's two elements to that, that the response. One is Conti showed the political nature that and how we're changing from kind of a traditional, I want to monetize things to actually I have a real sort of belief in this and I'm going to go do something against the grain. And then you've got that big swell of entertainment behind it where people have more time in their hands, they're learning to do more things, and they're starting to realize they can do stuff with these the skills. They can start to potentially extort money, you know, sell things on on, on various uh, channels, and and that's that's building up a big headache for organisations bigger than I think we've realised um, ever in the past two decades of cybersecurity. Yeah, and to pile up on that, actually, now it's easier than ever even to to get uh, that entry point barrier over the entry point barrier, right? Which is fifty dollars. Anyone can just go and buy access to the email of uh, someone working at a company, for example, deploy their own uh, rat that they've purchased for twenty dollars as well. So it's a, it's becoming just a, more of a more industrialized, service-oriented uh, issue uh, in which uh, basically all of these cyber criminals are offering the services and trying to to um, get uh, a bit of that money back in any way they can. Yeah, and I, I mean, it's a different world as well from what it was like in the 70s and 80s. I mean, let's go back to the criminals that operated then. You know, it was it was very much by association. You knew who you were dealing with. You were introduced in quite commonly. And it was a relatively small, tight-knit group of people. They had their contacts outside. There was agreements between criminal gangs sometimes. But let's face it, that, that they, they probably didn't always work particularly well. In the digital age, it's a very, very different landscape. You can have hundreds of people as part of your criminal group though, who have never met. They've not really been vetted, although I know that, that there is a lot of vetting that goes on with the bigger groups, the more organized groups. But as you guys say, it's relatively easy to get into. And whereas the risks in the 70s and 80s, if you're going to do over, say, a Hatton Garden jewellery shop, you, you were worried about the police coming down and catching you in the act or as you were legging it away with the, your ill-gotten gains. Nowadays, you don't have that. Our policing is not built to handle diverse individuals in diverse countries. I mean, yeah, okay, in the media, you occasionally get someone saying, oh, this person from this group has been has been caught. It's like, but that's just a drop in the ocean compared to the amount of people who are going to step into that position, waiting in the wings. And as you guys say, those training up to do that. I mean, some of these people, when you look at the intelligence behind it, and this is probably where, where, where it's good to move over to Victor, these aren't just people sitting in the basement. This is always what gets me about like the, the whole kind of vendor imaging around this. The hoodie-wearing individual sitting in the basement with the massive amounts of screens and matrix code all flipping around. Or if you're watching something like hackers, floaty landscapes, and people going around on skateboards and cracking in via phones in the underground. It's not like that. And although you know there's a lot of sensitization in the media we are facing a point where there's n it's very difficult for any organizational unit to police this even half as efficiently as it, as it could be when they're policing like physical crime the more kind of crime that we're used to these days i mean victor what are you, what are your thoughts on that 
I mean, the the I always found the image of the hacker with the Valklava uh, typing furiously on the keyboard very funny. Uh, these guys are not. Um, that's not the reality. They're, they're more like employees of a company. Um, we've mm. been taking a look recently at one of the most infamous uh, ransomware uh, groups. Um, probably have heard of it. It's called uh, Hive. And um, they have a very serious uh, product going on. They have an affiliate portal. They have a, um, a victim portal, a leak site. Ransomware as a service operation consists on acquiring or getting affiliates that will do the dirt job for them, getting into companies, deploying the ransomware. And the way they have all of that is just so industrialized, so service-oriented. Just for you to understand, in a real operation, after the affiliate has gained access to the company, they will just log in to the affiliate site and they will be able to just create the victim page and the page where they will publish data, st- stolen data if the company refuses to pay in, in just a couple of clicks that will already generate the executable with the ransomware they have to deploy, with the ransom node created inside. Just everything is very automated, uh, very automatized. And uh, in the end, again, they're just trying to sell a service. They're trying to make a living, right? And they are obviously um, doing it really, really well. Yeah, so I, I want to bring it back to because Victor's raised some eyebrow-raising points and, and people should take note, right, of just how easy it is to automate, right, the, the, the truly SaaS model of hacking, ransomware, et cetera. But, what, but so let's talk about the psychology. Why has this come about, right? Well, first of all, there's the proliferation of blockchain and, and, and all that jazz, which has kind of allowed people to feel more comfortable in, in transacting their ransoms. There's the ability to obfuscate where you're coming from much more easily. I don't know if I want to mention Starlink and Elon Musk's view to kind of be the, the privacy warrior of the world. I, that's probably another podcast, James, but no longer is the Great Wall of China a problem, the Great Firewall of China, rather, sorry. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it, we truly are in an age where you can do anything anywhere. But the psychology is interesting because, to your point, way back in the day when I started playing with code, you know, I'm talking early 90s, mid 90s, there were no laws at the time. The things that I were doing with various groups on various chat forums were not illegal. Obviously, if you steal stuff, you, then you know that that was illegal. But but now it is right now. There are laws that says you shouldn't do this. You can't uh, un, you know access these these resources X Y Z. But do they care anymore, right? And and psychologically, no, because mm. they know they can hide behind a whole lot of obfuscation capabilities. And secondly, I'm not moving this to a, 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 a capitalist discussion, but a lot of these groups, a lot of these people that are behind a lot of the activities we're seeing, if you look at the profile of your traditional attackers outside of cybercrime groups, they are typically growing up in places that aren't, aren't necessarily as affluent, right? As as some as as we would maybe think they are. They probably have an anti movement against the police and law enforcement. So there's a lot of less respect there, um, and they know that they can be protected. They know they can outsource what they want to do to these other groups, and they know they can make money off of this thing relatively easy. I mean, you know, I haven't monitored how much uh, an email sells for these days or a credit card, but you know, by orders of magnitude, you, you can make a reasonable living in a very risk-free way than you ever have before, and all from the comfort of your of your, your keyboard, uh, your laptop in, in any location in the world. That's the psychology. It's easy money, and it's all outsourced, and that's a big problem for organizations. You, you may not think you'll be targeted, and well, if you still think like that, 
I would suggest you don't, but you just may get caught in that massive net of some person just having a go, paying $50 here, $20 there. And before you know it, you have a ransomware breach in your hands. And that's a bad day at the brand office for your organization. It's actually quite interesting in how things have kind of gone full cycle. We're talking about the types of attacks that people are doing now. And, you know, ransomware is obviously the big one. You know, you go back, I don't know, 10 years and it wasn't really a thing. I mean, it kind of happened a few times, but. It was all about getting that database stuffed full of card information that you could then sell on the dark web and and what have you. And and we talked about protection rackets. You know, back in the day in in London, if you if you owned a pub, some some nice men would come. Well, maybe not so nice men would come down uh, once a week and uh, get their brown envelope and their pint, and they'd be off. And yes, your pub would exist and not burn down inexplicably. You know, at the weekend or overnight. And it's come full circle. We've, we, you know, we started out stealing data to sell it and to capitalize upon the sale of that. And now the biggest and quickest and the easiest payout you can get is by just saying, Oh, we've got your stuff, by the way. Um, so first, do you want it decrypted? Uh, if you want it, it's this price. Oh, and by the way, if you don't pay us, we'll, we, we've had a look through it. And there's all kinds of good stuff in there that the, uh, the, the world at large is going to have great fun with you with. And don't forget your compliance problems with GDPR and other stuff like that. So uh, yeah, you can pay us again. Actually, I um, going back a bit to the to the history of uh, of uh, ransomware. Basically, in uh, about ten years ago, more so, more or less, uh, the the one the the main threat that was raging, which is still present, but. Uh, a bit more under the radar were banking trojans, which uh, basically mm. tried to redirect transactions right to to uh, uh, mule accounts and stuff like that. And it was, I think, in 2014 when uh, the Votnet uh, crypto locker, I believe, was taken down, and the earnings of, of uh, the operators, uh, Slavic, I think, were revealed, uh, in which uh, it was shown that uh, he earned uh, something close to, I believe. $3 million in about uh, 12 months, something like that, that uh, triggered this ransomware boom that has lived on until now with uh, the, all of these improvements like uh, double extortion and triple extortion and has professionalized so much. Uh, right now, a ransomware gang that will extort you twice for the money will lose on reputation and people will stop paying those uh, those mm. ransomware uh, those ransomware gangs the ransom money because they know they will get extorted again. Nowadays, the the landscape that we have, the threat landscape that we have, ransomware-wise, is that the big groups are structured and maintained so as to keep their reputation and to make sure that clients, as they call them, um, are satisfied with uh, with their service. They even offer support. <laughs> yeah, they have 24, uh, 24-7 support uh, many times uh, so that uh, you're able to, you know, to, to uh, dialogue with them and try sometimes time, try to negotiate. Different groups have different politics about this. Some of them allow you to sort of try to um, reduce the payout. Others, when they realize you, for example, hired a third intelligence company, will just up the pricing to, to make you pay. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, back to the ecosystem, and it hasn't changed much, at least not in my research. In fact, I'd, I'd be interested to hear what you have to say after I kind of run through this. You know, on one side of the fence, you've got all of the as-a-service element now of, of the underworld, okay? So, you know, people that create malware tools, phishing campaigns, get keyloggers out there, botnet services, malware distribution services, data acquisition. The list goes on. It's incredible what you can get now for just $50, $25. 
And then you get into the kind of the mid tier, right? That kind of the, the people that like might mine the data they've got, validate some of the data they have in terms of credit card numbers that they've been used before, and then try to see which one to be feasible to use at payment gateways, et cetera, and how they can extort the money. And then you have this whole data sales element, which kind of moves across into the kind of the users, right? If an organization has been breached or a bank, um, you know, there are even people that will be the money mules, right? They'll they'll go and withdraw the cash if it's if it's one of those types of attacks or they don't have much anymore. And they'll go and do the physical transactions and they'll get paid a cut of it. But if they get caught, who cares? Because the master criminals behind it in this ecosystem don't really mind because they're protected. The reason I opened up with why I think nation state is a big challenge is I've just been seeing a swell of activity this past decade that concerns me significantly. And, and it's the Chinese APT groups more so than anywhere else. And, and, and I don't want to move the conversation to another topic, but it is kind of psychology. Is In 2020, right, the, the top five APT groups that targeted education in the UK were Chinese APT groups, right? And, and they still... I think four of the, 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 the top 10 now are still Chinese APT groups, right? You know, you heard about the Chinese 500-year plan, et cetera, et cetera. If I look at most of the intellectual property theft analyses, you're going to go and see that the Chinese APT groups, again, are, are up there. Now, Russia's not far behind. And so that's got to tell you a story, right? As organizations, yes, you use the data and credit card data and personal identifying information. That's all good stuff. We don't want to lose mm. that. I mean, but look at look at the top breaches of of the you know 21st century, you know Yahoo down to LinkedIn to people have your data. If you don't think you haven't had your data pawned somewhere, then you, you might be remiss of logic in in many respects, or you might just be lucky. Maybe you haven't. So your data's out there, right? Your date of birth, your 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 last passport copy. Mario got breached, right? If you're part of Star Wars Preferred Guest, you had your passport in there. I did. So that data is there. So so what's going to give these organizations the edge? And I say organizations, sort of nation state. It's been able to control the kind of psyche of a particular demographic or population. And I'd like to talk about TikTok in a moment as well, in terms of kind of what it is that we need to be worried about, and then the psychology driving it. But what I'm seeing is a lot of intellectual property theft and education-based targeted stuff from Chinese APT, APT groups, a massive political unrest globally. But these groups know a lot more about individuals than they ever have done in the history of cybercrime. So it's going to be very easy now to start to build a campaign that really does start to affect the core of people's belief systems. And, and for me, from a psychological perspective, you know, whether you're a business, whether you're an individual, it doesn't matter. It, you're living in a world where you really do have to be very careful about the data you consume and what it is, it ha- what the effect is on you, because it isn't just about the money anymore, guys. It's mm-hmm. about controlling people's views and thoughts on very, very key issues globally. And I know I've probably gone a little bit left field, James, but I'd love to see what Victor thinks about kind of some of that mindset of of of, of the psychology of the attack. No, definitely. We we already live in the in the era of disinformation, right? In which the news sources will try to to move your political gauge one side or to the other with outrageous articles. Half of it probably made up with information or with uh, you know uh, private identifier information that can be collected from educational systems. Uh, they can and have already influenced the uh, politics and the choices made by governments all around the world, and not only China, Russia as well, as you say. And uh, I think that uh, even though I know this is a bit of a touchy subject, we've seen uh, something very similar in the U.S. with the aftermath of uh, the ele- of the last election. So it is a very real threat, a very a real and a very real issue 
the thing that worries me about is that companies, there's not much uh, companies can do against this type of threats, right? Uh, the main access vectors nowadays are still the ones that were that were there like uh, 10 years ago, which are known vulnerabilities, you know, phishing attacks and uh, stolen passwords, right? But uh, usually these sort of APTs, they, they go one step beyond, uh, beyond that, right? As they're using zero days for software. You didn't know you have that it's vulnerable. They are using employees from within the company to infect the company itself, people who may have gambling debts, people who may have you know issues with uh, financial issues of some sort, and trying to leverage that to gain access to the company. And protecting against that is much, much, much harder than protecting against a stolen password or a, a known vulnerability that has been published. And because you, your update policy is not uh, as good as it should be, you get uh, targeted and you get uh, broken into. It's frightening, actually, because when you look at it in the grand scheme of things, we're seeing a dramatic increase in the shift in the speed of how people are developing new ways to really, really, well, let's face it, screw someone over, screw an organization over, screw a nation state over. Richard, I mean, yeah, you know, the theft of IP, it's it's kind of hard to quantify sometimes the theft of if, if a nation state gets hold of a new IP before it's kind of necessarily come out. They will capitalize on it because, let's face it, they've nicked it. And we all know the the old story of the you know China with with Rover, I think it was, where it was like, you know, we're going to see you because you've built a car exactly the same as a Rover. And the Chinese judge saying looks nothing like a Rover. And boom, there you go. That's it. That's done with it. You know, no argument anymore. But also deep fakes are starting to become a big thing now. Video clips of somebody doing something that they shouldn't be doing is is a uh, becoming a distinct issue you know the the whole kind of meddling with meddling with elections you know alleged meddling with elections we're seeing a lot more of that we're seeing a lot more of manipulation of media you know we're living in a world where one wrong turn as i say a celebrity an influencer or whatever and it could be nothing that you've done or said but just implied that you were involved with and boom cancel culture kicks in you're cancelled. Everybody you associate with has been tarred with the same brush. Before you know it, your, you know, your employer's getting rid of you because you're a liability for them. You're never going to get another job again. The organisation is tarred with the same brush. And there's a lot of damage that can be in a world where we rely on many respects, information and hearsay and, and just being implied on stuff that you've done wrong. Um, I mean, we worry today really about ransomware and things like IP theft, but where does this really go? And when you, uh, you know, one of the things I like about what you said earlier on, Richard, was the psychology behind it. The psychology of the people who are doing this today is extremely different from when you were back in your small groups of of hackers. Because the term hacker isn't derogatory originally. It's just a group of people who are trying to manipulate something to do something it shouldn't be able to do for either shits and giggles or out of interest to see what you could do with it. Nowadays, that term is a very, very different term. We call them malicious actors quite often in the industry now rather than than hackers, but the media likes to sensationalise everything. But we are seeing this significant shift in the types of attacks, the way attacks happen, the speed of attacks. I was, weirdly enough, Richard, speaking with one of your colleagues, Oliver, the other week, along with John from, you know, John Care about machine learning and artificial intelligence. And we talked, we did a two-parter where one side of it was 
you know, how are we going to use it sitting on the light side of the fence, the light side of the force, I like to like to term it. But then what happens when the bad guys get hold of it? Because you can bet your bottom dollar they've got every bit as the same technology that we have. It's just the way they use it and the scruples behind it is very different. And, and a lot of these guys who are coming into it now and have been coming into it for a while have had very much, dare I say it, and I am, I'm going to... Uh, you know, I'm a gamer. I'm an old school gamer. I love me old computer games. Yes, I'm a bit of a geek. I think, you know, most people in this game have been at some point or still are. But the gamer mentality that came up, the, the really dangerous mentality of, well, you know, I'm just going to do it for the sake of it because, you know, hey, I can. That's actually seemingly starting to come into it as well. There's no consequences anymore. You're not, the people are swatting one another for Christ's sake. They're, they're, they're saying that, this guy's going to shoot a load of people. And before you know it, uh, you know, on camera, a, a team of very heavily armed individuals are storming the house and, and threatening to do somebody some injury. It, it's frightening. You know, we talk about access brokers uh, and we, we should sort of pull back to the, the whole how, you know, how criminals work. It used to be like one group of people who used to do something. You know, they used to work tight-knit together. But now it's more a bit like how, say, the Yakuza used to work, which is very more organizational bent. You have the people who are developers working together to develop new malware, new ways of getting into places, new you know, new, new ways to utilize vulnerabilities. You have entire groups of people who just look into the health of a company. What kind of insurance have they got? Can they pay if we ransomware them, you know? How viable are they for, uh, for, for paying up? You know, are they going to pay up? Is there a historic where they, they turn around and they said they wouldn't? You have them, obviously, the management and the teams at the top who are kind of coordinating everybody um, and pulling in all the different people's kind of information, accessing the access brokers to access things. And again, Victor, something you said as well, you know, another big danger is that I'm starting to see is there's a lot of internal people who are not being paid very well. We're living in a time where inflation's starting to go crazy and people can't afford to feed their kids and it's getting worse and worse and worse. Being told, oh, if you give me, I'll give you 20 grand if you give us access to, to the system. So that's all you've got to do. Give us access, we'll give you 20 grand in Bitcoin or 20 grand in Ethereum or whatever. Yeah, not, not even that. You know, it's, it's sometimes even a smaller sum. And the only thing they ask of you is that you plug in a USB that they will mm. send you or that you just uh, click on a website or a link they, they've shared with you through your email. Yeah, but, but doesn't that talk to, and this is what, this is the great point. The rules of engagement have changed. The psychology of the attacker, you wouldn't have even dreamed of that stuff 15 years ago. It would have been, you know, it was all about intellectual bragging rights and your, your hacker community social score. Now it's completely different. You know, groups are targeting your children at home to get them to download software or whatever it is to gain access to corporate systems. There really is the, 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 the boundaries that used to exist about who attackers went after and why. They, they've been blurred massively. To your point, you know, it's, it's let's just go after the weakest employee, the one that we know is, is searching for home loans for whatever or, you know, or taking out payday loans. We know they're in a bit of a pickle paying $5,000, as, as Victor said, to stick in the USB key. And my God, you probably saved tens of thousands in, in research and development work as the hacker group to try to get into the organization. The rules of engagement have changed. Um, and that's one of the bigger concerns for organizations as well. Do you think it's changed also? Because obviously, you know, we live in very much an outsourced environment now. I mean, 
again, go back, I sound really old now, you know, go back sort of 15, 20 years, you had your IT team. Yeah, sometimes you'd have a third-party support company, you'd have companies that provided you with software, that kind of thing. But now it's all as a service model where you may not even have an IT team, you may outsource it completely. And some of those people are in parts of the world where, let's face it, wages aren't exactly the greatest at the best of times. And, and the, the, you know, there's a big argument over whether they're being exploited or whether they're not. It's frightening how it can rapidly go downhill for any organization. Yes, you're cost-saving extensively by going to the cloud and getting somebody to do your incident response here and getting somebody over here to do your third-line support and your second-line support over in, in you know, parts of the world. You're giving some of them admin access to be able to do stuff. And, and it's just increasing the attack vectors the landscape is dramatically moving. We've got more and more inroads in in our network infrastructures. I mean, just look at SolarWinds. One hack, boom. Epic yeah. amounts of companies being <laughs> you know, yes. getting involved. Yeah, the supply chain attacks uh, are on the rise, definitely. And it's all thanks to, to all of these, uh, let's say, collaboration between companies. Uh, but at the same time, because of the the rhythm that the companies have, I think the, the way the technology evolves, many companies cannot afford, you know, to have their own uh, security team developing their own mm. internal tools to be able to to maintain that security. Which is why it's so important to understand where your where your your threats are, right? Uh, who is the whose whose target you are? Who is most likely to attack you? You know, because in the end. And all security, uh, all security risks that you may have within your company end up being, as we said at the beginning, a business risk. Right? Understanding these these sort of attacks and how they happen is how you stop them, is how you prevent them. Yeah, to Victor's point, one of the things I've always advocated, if for any CISO I've ever spoken to, right, your your first job is to understand what you're protecting yeah. and who you're protecting it from. Okay, once you know that, then you need to know where it sits, et cetera, et cetera. And I think, you know, if maybe the psychology of attacker, this podcast has probably scared the socks off of you about, that. you know, there's nothing you can do. It's all going to happen anyway. That's not the case. That's not what Victor and I are saying. What we're saying is you've got to understand what your true business risk is. So you've got to know what kind of organization you're operating as and, and, and what, the, what kind of things would, would represent a bad day for your organization, what those assets are. And don't just think of digital assets. Okay. It's also people as well, because, you know, uh, going after individuals, as we've already shown you, is as easy as it was today and it's ever been. So know that, know what you're protecting and who, and then you can start to map who you're protecting it from. And, you know, and you can play the game out. You can even map it back to the types of APT groups and their techniques, tactics, procedures. So you can actually build a very viable cybersecurity program. And more importantly, one that you can validate and consistently improve. Don't just put something in and then think, this drives me nuts, right? Organizations buy products for three to five-year life cycles. So if they put a product in at day one, they go, right, that's it. For three years, this is going to protect me. It's like... We're safe. <laughs> it's incredible that you run a business like that. Since when has cybersecurity tactics and APT groups stayed? I mean, yes, they do similar things, but they change at a rate of automation yeah. and speed. You have to constantly reevaluate if the tech's good and if it isn't. And if it's not good in six months, it's not good in six months. Change it because at the end of the day, it's your business and your job on the line. Forget the solution lifecycle and accounting sign-off period. So, you know, I, I'm backing up with Victor saying by trying to bring it back to how do you solve the problem? How does that psychology map back to your business outcomes? And it really is, what am I protecting? Where is it? And, and yeah. that leads to who you're protecting from. And, and a wise man once wrote in a very, very ancient piece of text, you know yourself, then you'll win half your battles. But if you know your enemy 
and yourself, you'll win all your battles. Well, maybe not all of them, but you'll have a pretty good chance of, of surviving it intact. And at the end of the day, the way we, we look at security has to change, and it has been changing for a while, uh, to keep up. Because, again, you make a good point, Richard. You know, We're not trying to scare you guys out there who are listening to this. We're just trying to give you an idea of really what these people who are doing this are kind of looking for. What's their mentality? Why, why are they doing it? What are the kind of targets they look for? What weak links do they look for? Because that's what they're looking for quite often. And once they're in, they're in. There's nothing you can do. All you can do is, is respond to it and hope that you know it's not going to be too bad. Yeah, James, are the weak links any different today as they were 10 years ago? No, right? You, 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 this is the issue. Sorry, this is the takeaway for me. It's The users are still your weak link, right? They always yeah. will be. They're targeted more so now than ever before. And also your credentials and, and, you know, making sure you've patched these systems that are sitting in the corner that are still out, talking to the internet, still the same entry points, still the same threat vectors. But what you have to do as a business leader and an owner of cybersecurity, in my experience, from the countless breaches I've, I've investigated and drilled down to component parts, is knowing those assets that are going to be targeted mm. and putting the best possible protection framework that doesn't just sit there from day one and, as I said, <laughs> runs for three years and you don't change it. You're constantly evaluating what's changing, what's new. And, and machine learning is a good example of how you can use technology to really supercharge your ability to detect what's different and react to that quickly. Absolutely. I mean, you know, the, the rate of change, the rate that, that, that things are going, the, the, the way that we're consuming our technology. I think, I think the one aspect that has changed very much from historical ways of doing it is the way that we're so distributed now. It's hard to track where sometimes issues come from. If you've got millions of service providers all having their, maybe not millions, but you know, a lot of service providers interacting with your environment in some fashion or another, uh, along with everybody working from home, and we haven't even touched on that, you know, perimeters have just been horribly smashed. And and it goes back to, I mean, I used to, there used to be a group called the Jericho Forum. I don't know if they're still around. I haven't really looked into them. I, they probably have. But way back when I, you know, after I first got into security, I looked at what they were saying, which was, no, you know, ignore the perimeter, concentrate on the assets, which is exactly what we do today. And I thought they were they were crazy. I thought, no, no, can't can't do that. But boy, has, have they been proved right. I think it's frightening the, the, the fact that you can have a breach and it could be none of your employees. It could be none of the employees of your service provider, but it could be an employee of the service provider of the service provider of the service provider that you have or the people who developed the original code somewhere back down the line. And you'll never know because, again, one of the things that we always say when, when we're doing work with any customer is, if you've got service providers, have the right to audit and make sure it goes down the chain as well. Because when you're doing investigations, it's tough enough to figure out what's happened and where it's happened. Okay, our tools are a lot more robust these days. I mean, I know both of you have had to, had the joy of getting the massive set of logs and trying to find the tiny little needle of truth somewhere in the you know in the in the hideous log pile. Now we've, we've, we've got the ability to do it a lot quicker. And as you say, Richard, with machine learning, that's going to get even quicker and quicker and quicker and quicker to the point where I think it's going to get easier. But without robust links with the service providers and the ability to, to, to work together to figure out where issues have gone, I think it's going to get much, much harder to figure out whether it was a, you know, an issue with an individual giving up credentials to an access broker or being an access broker or a disgruntled employee or a, 
fundamentalist who worked for a company who was owned by a nation state who got annoyed by said nation state. And before you know it, boom, yeah, I'll give you guys access to all their systems. I don't know. I don't know where we go from here. It's, it's quite frightening. I, I believe it was in uh, 2003 that uh, Google published their Zero Thrust uh, paper. I think that's where we, where we should be already, right? Identify assets, not uh, don't trust the perimeter, you know, identify the asset that's connecting, not the person. Mm. That's the right way to go. I, I agree. I mean, you know, one of the things that, that does worry me a little bit with, with some of the you know, zero trust side of things is a little bit more along the lines of we need to be careful how we do that because it makes things difficult to do. It makes, people, it makes it difficult for people to work in a way that's adaptive, quick, robust, because having too much security is every bit as damaging as having too little. You know, too much security and people can't do what they need to do. Too little security and you're just going to get done over, you know. Yeah, and that's what technology needs to, uh, to adapt and to speed up. Windows 11 can only be installed now on devices that have a TPM. Me, from a personal point of view, you know, that's something that horrifies me. But as a security person, I think, look, now I can identify the devices of my employees, you know, mm. making sure that they are connecting to DAT from their laptop, not from anywhere else. Right? They can identify that laptop connecting to, you know, any other place. So um, I think it, it's, a, it's a matter of, uh, of technology growing in that direction as well and to making things easier for the user as well as uh, harder for the attacker. It's a compromise we have to reach. Yeah, you know, I think summarize some of these points, at least from my perspective, for the listener, what we're up against is a scale of economy problem, right? Yes, cybercrime is largely driven by money and people want to get rewards in a monetary basis for their efforts. And we know that, right? And so that, so that means no business is safe from any of this. And we know that. We, we, we're, all, we're all cybersecurity people. We get it. But I think what we are seeing, and, and to Victor's point, is a change in the pace of entry points and, and the age. A lot of people getting in much more easily, much more auto in an automated fashion. It means that there's a lot more breach activities that can go on in a shorter space of time. So you're going to see a lot more activity, a lot more noise. Um, and then you've got the geopolitical climate that we're in, whatever it is, whether it's the, the current Ukraine-Russia war, whether it's the distrust of pharmaceuticals, whether it's whatever it might be, there is a real big resurgence of hacktivism. Um, so what does that mean, right? The, 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 psychology, the psychology of those attackers, whilst mostly are driven by money, now we're seeing more be driven by socioeconomic, sociopolitical policy. And so as a business, just back to my original point, what do I do as a business? What are my assets? What am I protecting? Really understand and answer that question. If you don't know what you've got, go get tools that do it. There's some great technologies out there off the shelf that will tell you what you have and where you have it and what state it's in, right? Um, and once you've built that picture, then you can start to put the security policies around it to, to help fight these attackers and the mindsets of these attackers. And as we've all agreed on this podcast... Don't just sit pretty. Don't sit there and think you've done it. Once you've spent, you know, a million, you know, pounds, euros, dollars on your your technology, constantly reassess what's going on and, and using automation to do that. Uh, but it comes back to they want your money, they want your data. You need to know what data you have and what they're likely to come after, and then how you protect it. That's the answer to the psychology of the attacker, in my opinion. And just out of interest, I mean, obviously, you know, you guys both come from. Good companies with a lot of intel. I mean, what, what's the projected cost of cybercrime going to be in, I don't know, sort of next year, five years? I mean, I've seen some figures banding around 
various different sort of media environments. But uh, I thought I'd, I'd I'd finish off or come to to before we hit the final conclusions, hit you guys and see uh, you know what are you seeing? Um, just as a sobering thought for for people listening to this. On on my side, um, not sure about the forecast, but I can tell you that this year we've seen, uh, in, in average, I believe, 43 um, leaked, uh, 43 companies being breached and being the information being leaked every week. So 43 a week for 52 weeks that we have. And that's only the ones that get publicized. Now think mm. about all of those that actually pay for the ransom. Right. Mm. Or that uh, get breached, but uh, there's not enough data for them to to make it worth it, or for the attacker to leverage it against them. That's a lot of people um, getting getting breached every every week, honestly, James. And uh, unless uh, people start, you know, working a bit better around their security and taking things seriously, and stop thinking this won't happen to me, I think the number <laughs> will go up. Yeah, I mean, look, the the the, the figures are wild, right? I mean. I've seen figures as low as 354 million by 2024. I've seen figures as high as 10.5 trillion by 2025. But I, I always find these figures a misnomer to, to the, to the person or the persons that make a decision organization, right? Because 10.5 trillion means really not a great deal to you. I think to Victor's point, it's where the activities are at their highest, where we're seeing a swell of, of, you know, activity that creates the, the financial kind of fallout that we're facing. And so coming back to business mindset, I always try to do a force multiplier when I'm, when I'm talking to organizations about this. I say, look, forget that certain groups say 10.5 trillion by 2020, by 2025. You need to, you need to work that back to what's going to cost you. So, you know, what is it when, when you can't, you know, sell products for a day or for an hour? Okay. Yeah. Or what would happen if, if your CISO or your CEO or whatever lost access to their systems? And by the way, it isn't an easy exercise to go through, but it's super critical to do because then you can start to monetize the cost of a breach of an account for your top executives or the person who runs your AD infrastructure and identity access management across your cloud service provider environment, right? And, and, and run the spreadsheet and then see, to Victor's point earlier, where your biggest business risks, risks sit. And then you can work out what that cost is to you because that's really what you care about because that's what you're making spending and project decisions on. So that's how I would approach the, the, the cost of cybercrime as a business because looking at numbers in the industry, I mean, it could be double that by 2025. We just don't know. Absolutely. And you make a good point and definitely one for, for, for another podcast actually on, on risk management and the importance of quantification as much as qualification. You know, because I think a lot of people don't calculate the recovery costs. They don't calculate, you know, the lost productivity and the, the, the especially with things like ransomware, they, where they've encrypted everything. You know, it's, it could take a, a long time as, as the colonial pipeline found out, you know. So, you know, leading into the, the closing thoughts, we've kind of hit the top of it. I mean, where, you know, where do we go from here? I mean, you know, I think the, the, the central message we all seem to have is you look at your assets, secure based off of assets and take security seriously, which is a great message. But how do we communicate that to, to the wider business world at large? Because I think one of the things that, that, that all security people who have been around for a while have, have experienced is that tough. And it was something that Vic said, actually, you know, this will never happen to me. What's the risk? What's the cost? Why would we be targeted? What are your thoughts? Where 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 do we go from here? The, the art of negotiation to your board 
what's in your magazine <laughs> is all about how well you tell the story, right? To tell me a fact, I remember for a day, tell me a story, I remember for a lifetime. And I do think, you know, the, the schools of, you know, MBAs and stuff are focusing too much on metrics and facts and figures, but actually the psychology of the attacker is a story that plays itself out in nefarious and insidious ways. So you can't just come to the board and say, I need, you know, half half a million pounds or euros or dollars or whatever, because I think we need this product without selling them the big picture, without telling them what's going on in, in, in the world currently, what are the latest APT groups that would focus on my industry doing, what are the major breaches that have been behind it. And as a result of that, these are the assets that I know that will give our business the worst possible day in our history should they be compromised. And so therefore, if we spend X, we reduce risk by a factor of Y, right? And cyber insurance is one of the conversations. Um, <laughs> but you can't, you can't just go in and say, I need money to add this product because it will save me from what I may not be affected by. You have to tell the story about the current cybercrime landscape and, and really make it personal to your board, to your decision makers. That's when they start to get on board with the mission you're trying to solve. And it isn't just about making budget prop decisions because too many businesses make cybersecurity decisions and budget and not actually on the real world and what's going on today. Yeah, I agree 100%. As, uh, um, I'm not sure if you've ever been ISO certified, but the first step is always get management on board. You know, and uh, for security, it's always the same. Go to them with a story, explain properly the risk it poses, make them understand, make them understand the the, the cost this may have for you and for your company. And if they don't listen, fine. You know, you've done your job. Exactly. Right. Yeah. You've told them. Yeah, absolutely. Well, guys, it's been fantastic, and I think. This is probably a subject matter that that, that we're going to have to revisit from time to time. It's uh, uh, you know we we within security you're used to a fast evolving pace and the way that people secure their environments, the what you have to do to secure your environments. But understanding the criminal element behind it, what their the goals and what they're looking to do, also changes over time and can evolve quite dramatically and quite quickly. And and in order to, as, as we said with the Sun Tzu quote earlier on, you know, you've got to know your enemy as much as you know yourself to be able to, to, to win that battle. And it is a battle. And it's a battle that's not going to stop. No one's going to win this. It's, it's going on and on and on. It's just changing every so often. Anyway, thank you, guys. It's been an absolute pleasure. Richard, uh, Victor, hope you've had a good time. No doubt we'll have you back. For various other topics and maybe even this topic again yeah look forward to it. hopefully yeah absolutely thank you very much for having us James <laughs> it's been a pleasure Richard yeah you too Victor great great speaking with you uh, appreciate it as well James thank you thank you very much and uh, look after yourselves out there thank you for listening to the Rosewire podcast if you like the podcast if you love the podcast please feel free to subscribe and if you have any questions please get in touch. Thank you very much and have a great day.